welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. On this day of seeing the gospel lived out, we have a special message on understanding the gospel and all of its greatness. It's contained in one particular verse in scripture that one great theologian said is the gospel contained in 24 words. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. So together with me, will you hear the word of God? Paul wrote, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's holy, universe-spanning, and amazing word. May we hear the gospel from it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Praise the Lord. We know on on baptism Sundays like this, because baptism is a a visible declaration of the gospel, going down into the waters of baptism symbolizes the fact that when these people came to Christ, they were taken out of spiritual death, and they were brought into new life, and it's a day of the declaration of the gospel. So often we take a break from our regular preaching series, which right now is through the gospel of Luke. And we spend the morning talking about the greatness of the gospel that we've celebrated through baptism, and we're going to do that today. And I've chosen this great text. You've heard it often from me. It's one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. It means more to me every day, more to me when I see my sin and my Savior every day. And I know that it portrays so much of the testimonies uh, that myself and Pastor Dan heard behind the scenes of these that were baptized before you. You saw people from different ages and, of course, different experiences demonstrate their faith in Christ today. But even though they're a different age and different experience, they have one great thing in common, and that is that they came either at a young age or an older age to understand the value of the death of Jesus. They understood it in such a way that it compelled them to obey him in baptism. It's what I would call the disciples' discovery. The longer I go in ministry, and it's been a while, the more I see that people can be easily confused about what it means to become a Christian and what the gospel really is. That's why ever since I've joined this congregation, I've done for you what I've done with many others that I've served over the years. My desire as I open the word verse by verse is to never neglect to preach the gospel over you. You'll hear the gospel from me frequently, not just because God repeats himself frequently through any Bible passage and any book of the Bible, but because I want to make sure that you hear often the word of the cross because some of you still have not crossed over to truly know him. That's true of any gathering of people gathered in a church these days. And so I preach it over you who have yet to come so that even perhaps today you will make a life-altering decision to trust Christ. 
but I also preach it over all of you who have trusted in Christ so that you value and understand the gospel that you love and that you know that it can carry you all the way home to heaven. And I also do it because I need to hear it. So indulge me. Indulge me as I once again touch on the beauty of the gospel. But it is what I call the disciple's discovery. In other words, you really can't be a disciple of Jesus if you don't understand the gospel. And quite frankly, understanding the five things that I'm going to talk about today bring you into the depths of knowing it so you will want to follow him with all of your heart. Now, you might say, well, you're kind of getting back and uh, you're repeating the basics And you're talking about something that's so familiar to so many people that most people understand it. I would say that might be true, although that's changing in our society a lot. But even among people that do hear it and understand it, not everybody welcomes the gospel. Even people that call themselves religious. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to talk about uh, an individual that wrote an opinion about the gospel. This was some years ago now, and it was in the Spokesman Review. Uh, It was written by a man who who claimed to be a pastor, but it was pretty clear that he had abandoned the gospel that he might have believed at one time. He wrote a column, I think it was around Easter, if I recall, to talk about how offended he was by the gospel as most people understand it. So he went public, and so when you go public, I guess you open yourself up to a response. He wrote that to tens of thousands of people. I'll share a little bit about it to hundreds of people, if you don't mind. Because it reflects the way a lot of people in our society are beginning to think about the death of Jesus. Rather than being amazed at the grace of God that the death of Jesus portrays, some people today are becoming offended. To paraphrase what this individual wrote, he says, I've now become offended by the way the gospel of Christ is taught by many people. I'm offended at anybody that believes that God would have to send his son to die for me. In fact, he said, if the God of the Bible did that, he's not my God. He's a bloodthirsty God who murdered his son. He went on with, even more, you know, picturesque words than that. But he said, no, I no longer want to believe in that God. I want to believe in the God as I would understand him. He doesn't know it, but he was echoing what God told the prophets to warn Israel against when he said, you all thought together that I was a God altogether like you. I'm not. He's far exalted above us. Thank his wonderful name. But this man went on to say, no, now I want to believe in a God who doesn't have moral standards. He's non-moral. He doesn't condemn anyone. He doesn't have any definition of right or wrong or sin. He's a totally welcoming God. If Jesus did die, and he said if Jesus did die, it was probably a mistake. God the Father lost track of God the Son when God the Son was on planet Earth, and Jesus died by mistake. The politics got out of hand. The crowds got a little angrier than he thought. And before he knew it, he lost control of events, and he found himself on the cross. It was a political death, nothing more. He said, here's how I want you to think about Jesus today. Think of Jesus as driving through humanity as the driver of a big old school bus. 
a big old yellow school bus like you loved to see when you were a kid. And when he pulls up to your life at the time of your death, he hauls open the door and smiles at you and says, welcome onto the bus. Now, you may have a lot of opinions about what I've just said, and you might think that that's how you'd draw God if you had the, the pen in your hand. But God never gave us that option because he's God. There's a lot of things about that that are pathetic. But one thing I'll point out to you is that is precisely the opposite of what Jesus said about himself. Besides not making a lot of sense, here's the biggest reason I reject that pastor's idea. It's not scriptural. You see, when Jesus described his own death and his own mission, it was all about sacrificing his life for you. He said in Mark 10, 45, that the son has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus preached many times, particularly in the last year preceding his death, that he was intentionally moving to the cross to give his life as a sacrifice, to pay the price for sin. And he was not forced into it by some bloodthirsty father. The scripture says he did it willingly. I lay down my own life, Jesus said. No one takes it from me. So there's a lot scripturally wrong with what was said. Now, why do I point all that out? Because, unfortunately, that's a lot... That's how a lot of people view the death of Jesus today. They view it as a political mistake, something that might have happened in history, but that their God is a non-moral God and that there is no issue with the sin in their life. Well, I'm here as a messenger of the gospel. I'm here to tell you what the New Testament says. And I have given you one text that talks about the fact that you cannot really understand who Jesus is or why he died unless you face your own sin. Now what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is, as someone once says, it is the gospel focused in 24 words. It's one verse and one epistle, but it contains a world of understanding that you need to have as a disciple about the gospel. What I did when I studied it, as I put it into a long, as I sometimes do to kind of give you the big picture, a long sentence. And uh, I want to have that put up. I believe you'll be able to see it on the screen. Let me just read to you the sentence that captures the teaching of this one verse. And then my message to you today is I'm going to break that sentence into five parts, each of which I'm going to fill with verses from the scripture to show you the fullness of the gospel. The gospel that these people believed, that led them to obey Christ. The gospel that this society needs to hear. The truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 basically says this. Because we were helplessly condemned by our sin, God the Father created a plan to place all our sin upon his sinless Son so he could place all of his Son's righteousness upon us and accept us into his presence forever. There's a life of preaching in that text, and there's a life of rejoicing for the believer in that text. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It is the depths of the gospel. So all I want to do today is in recognition of the faith decision that these people made and to declare the gospel, I want to explain each of those five things for you. For some, it may be just a deepening of what you already know, but you may make the disciples' discovery today and the gospel may become clear to you for the first time. I hope so. 
So let's break it apart. Let's go now to the first statement. Because we were helplessly condemned by our sin, the gospel was brought and salvation was wrought. How do I get that? Now we go to the text. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Focus on the first part. For our sake. Why did Jesus come? For our sake. Why did he die? For our sake. Why did history change when he arrived? For our sake. Why did he suffer for sin and rise from the dead? For our sake. It all goes back to the fact that there was a fundamental problem that was denied by the author I quoted, but the scripture declares from beginning to end, and that is human sin. Let me ask you, having perused the internet all week long and watched your news feed all week long and seeing again another set of horrendous human stories all week long, have you been wondering if human beings have a problem? Let me just give you the long Greek explanation for that. We do. All right? It's evident. It's exploding in human understanding that mankind, whatever culture, whatever income level, whatever human situation, even whatever age we're seeing, is declining into a corruption that's never really been seen in our social history. Why is that? It's because the Bible says two things about human beings. This may bother you, but I'm here to bother your categories. That's my job. The Bible says that far from being fundamentally good people, the scripture says that all human beings are sinners by nature. Sinners. You say, where do you find that in that New Testament, Pastor? Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Pretty direct. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam is what it's referring to, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Circle that in your mental Bible, because all sinned. So here we have the declaration that sinners are sinners by nature. People are born sinners. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that his mother conceived him in an immoral relationship. He's saying that from the very moment of his physical and personal existence, he was in sin. Sinners are born that way. You say, I don't think that's fair. Again, let's take the pen out of your hand today. You don't get to write morality today. The great standard giver is God. It may not seem fair to you, but God has revealed in his word that it is real. And may the spirit guide you to accept the the very difficult reality that you need to understand to come to Christ. And that is that you are a sinner. We're all sinners. We're sinners by nature. It says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. It's a condition that all are born with, all arrive on the planet with it. How do you understand that? It's difficult to get our minds around it. It's something that God had to reveal and say, listen, I'm master over the universe and I'm outside human history. This is how it happened. Accept it. It's difficult as a, as a preacher to, to illustrate this. Let me try something from our human experience a number of years ago. Going on 10 years ago now, there was another virus we were worried about a long time before corona, and, 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 and COVID came along. This was a, a virus that made its appearance in, in the natural ex- environment of Africa, 
called Ebola. How many have ever heard of Ebola? A lot of us were hearing about it about 10 years ago because it was a very scary virus that was spreading throughout Central Africa. Ebola had a 60% fatality rate, 60%, and it happened within a week to two weeks. 60%. And it was a frightful death to witness. It was spreading village to village, and they were battling to contain it. One of the things they were trying to do was to find what they called patient zero. To go back in the chain of contagion through all their studies and surveys to determine where Ebola made its way into the human population. The very first person to contract, if you will, Ebola was patient zero. Well, I would draw from that illustration to tell you that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that from God's perspective, patient zero was Adam. Adam and Eve together stepped into sin. And that's where sin entered the human experience. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death comes with sin, the text says. And so death spread to all men because all sin. It's a mystery in Scripture, but the Bible says that even though I wasn't there, I sinned in Adam. He represented me. Sin became part of my nature, became part of my human condition. So people are sinners by nature. You may not say it's fair. The Bible says it's real. But let me give you a little comfort in your twisted thinking, perhaps. That is, you don't have to worry about the fact that sinners are sinners by nature. Very quickly, they demonstrate they're also sinners by choice. Isn't that true? That's what I said when I said, do you see something fundamentally wrong in human society? What is it? It is the fact that we're born sinners and we live it out. It becomes our life of choice. No better place to go in the Bible than Romans chapter 3. It's a glorious chapter toward the end, but in the middle it's very dark because it describes mankind, Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. That does away with your personal theology that says only these people that commit heinous crimes we see on the news are unrighteous. No, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. Notice all the totality. No one, all, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes on into their verbal and relational life. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Stop there. If you've ever studied human history, that's the whole book. The concluding statement is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And Romans 3, farther down in the passage, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the human condition. That's the spiritual reality behind what you see as visibly wrong. It's not a lack of education, the wrong environment, the wrong set of inspirations, or anything else we can deliver to the human condition. It is within the human condition. The Bible teaches we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. Now notice also the Bible says it's the total experience of the entire human race. Ephesians 2, chapter 3. 
it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, there it is by biblical definition, children of wrath, wrath from a perfect and holy God who cannot tolerate this kind of sin. And look at the last phrase, like the rest of mankind. The Bible teaches that sin is a total problem. We're totally helpless. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. You could put it all this way. We're all Ebola patients. Yet unlike Ebola, this has a 100% fatality rate. It carries with it an eternal sentence in hell. Because God is a perfect and just God. Now things could have been left there. But the weight of this needs to land on a heart to understand that that's our situation. But God didn't leave it there. He offered a cure for the presence of sin and the penalty of sin. And I mean, wouldn't you be interested in that if that was true? I mean, if you were suffering Ebola and you heard that two tents down, there was a doctor from the United States that had a syringe full of a newly discovered cure, what would you do to get there? I've just described to you the essence of what's wrong with human hearts and human culture. And yet the text doesn't end there. For our sake, God went on the move. And that's the second thing. Because we were helplessly condemned by our sin, God the Father created a plan. Go back to the passage. Now the news climbs into wondrous goodness. God the Father created a plan. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. And he did it for our sake. He created a plan. Though many have pointed out, he didn't have to. God in perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect holiness could have brought judgment down on the human experience. And patient zero could have been the last. He could have judged the world judged mankind, stopped it at that point, and not allowed it to go further. But God, for his great glory, according to Ephesians chapter 1, has more. Into the helpless context of our sin, he brought a great plan. We were helpless, and we're helpless without this. He sent a plan that revolved around his sinless son. Now, it's interesting, God took the initiative There are many people today who believe that man can reverse his situation and by escalating his own goodness, given enough time and opportunity, man can perfect himself. That's the hidden gospel in our secular society. That's behind all the technology researches. That's behind all the social experiments that man can bring himself up to a point of perfection and nobility. We already know the Bible says that's a lost cause. But God the Father has brought a a plan to take sinful people into heaven with him. And he took the initiative. Now he could only take the initiative because, number one, only he is morally perfect. Got to remember that. Only he is morally perfect. We're locked in our sin and can do nothing to get out of it. But God in his wonderful perfection and love took the initiative and has created a plan of salvation for us. And secondly, it's only he that's been offended. 
Most of us, unless we're stirred by the Holy Spirit, are not bothered by our sin. We create a standard that brings the curve down to where we can live comfortably with who we are and what we've done. But then God's Holy Spirit begins to bring us under the hearing of the Word and He pricks our hearts. But in fundamental form, only God has been offended. He's been offended deeply. And He alone had the moral high ground to create a plan to redeem us. And He did. Now how did He do it? Well, it required a death. Why? Romans 5.8 says there's a penalty for all sin and it must be paid. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why was a death required? Because sin has a penalty to it. Someone had to come into history, live a perfect life, and die the death that I was due in my place. And that someone turned out to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into time... And he perfectly fulfilled that plan of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem. That means to pay the price on someone's head, to pay the penalty laying over their life. Those who were under the law. What was the law? It was the human expression of God's perfect standard. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's a rescue plan. And see, God planned it. The scripture says, when the fullness of time had come, he had planned it according to Ephesians before the foundation of the world, before you were ever created. But he allowed the fullness of history to roll. And at the perfect time, he sent forth his son from heaven's throne room onto planet earth. And he lived a perfect life. Born of woman, he was a perfect man. Lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't have lived. Fulfilled God's law perfectly and went to die so that you could be redeemed. People talk to me all the time about how unfair unfair God is to declare people sinners. And I say, well, take your eyes off that for a minute and gaze at the wonder of how wonderful he is to create a solution for it. You can never say again that God is unfair in dealing with human sin because he created a plan to deal with it. If you reject his plan, you stand before his justice on your own. I'm appealing to you not to do that today. Would you be willing to admit your helplessness and accept his plan? That's the essence of what these people did today. They understood their helplessness and sin, and they heard about a plan. Here's the third dimension, and that is, what did the plan do? Go back to the text. For our sake, because we were helplessly condemned by sin, God the Father created a plan, and here's the third part, to place all our sin upon his sinless Son, look at the language, very specific. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. No Bible teacher, no preacher, no theologian can ever fully and clearly and completely describe the wonder of that phrase. It's something that never would have entered into the mind of man to do. You see, death was required. I mentioned it earlier. In Romans 5.8, it's further amplified in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Romans also said, and I read it to you earlier, that when sin came onto the planet and death, death came through sin. So sin and death are connected. All sinners die. Now there's two aspects to the death that sin brought to mankind. One, God told Adam, was physical death. We see that every day. All of us are headed for it. That's the 100% fatality rate I mentioned to you. We're all heading there. We've seen people go there. It's a result of sin. It's part of the penalty. But there's also another type of death you don't hear much about, and that's spiritual death, and it's just as real. What is spiritual death? It's separation from God as we pay eternally for our own sin in the place I mentioned uncomfortably a few minutes ago, hell. Because of God's perfect righteousness and holiness, he cannot receive me and be in fellowship with me if I live in sin and if I'm a sinner unbought. Well, there's two choices. How do you deal with spiritual death? You have a decision about that. You cannot avoid physical death because it's part of the mortality we're born into, but you certainly have a decision today, my friend, about how you will face spiritual death. Here are your two options. You at your physical death, can choose to die eternally. In other words, when your physical death occurs, your spirit is separated from bo- your body, and your, you and your spirit go to suffer your penalty on your own forever. That's what you're electing to do if you deny your sin and deny these realities. You've taken it on yourself to suffer your own eternal death. So the two choices are you die eternally or second, you find an eternal and perfect substitute. That's what this text teaches us. God provided one. Now that substitute had to have some very important qualities. First of all, he had to be sinless (laughs) because it had to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect sinless being who didn't bring his own sin to the cross. If Jesus had sinned, his death on the cross would have been limited to paying for his own sin. He never did. Never sinned. So he had to be sinless, which meant he had to be God's son. But he also had to be human to be a matching sacrifice for you. To take your place, the Bible says. He was there in your place on your behalf. So he had to be the sinless son of God, and he had to be a perfect human being. And Jesus alone supplied both of those things. When he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17... God the Father spoke in an audible voice from heaven as Jesus came up out of the water, as we've seen people do today. They were baptized in testimony of their forgiveness. He was baptized out of obedience to the Father. When he came up out of that water, identifying with with people, God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There's a lot of theology in that verse. That means Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And if he's beloved in the eyes of a perfect God, it means he's without sin. And the father said, I am well pleased with him. So Jesus was was the one who could go to the cross and be well-pleasing to the father, the only one without sin. But he was also fully human. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus went through everything in the human experience, but don't miss the last three words, yet without what? Sin. Perfect as a human being. Not just theoretical perfection, but tested and proven perfection, as we've seen in his life and in the scripture. So Jesus was both. He was sinless 
and human. Perfectly sinless, perfectly human. That's why Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the Jesus that went to the cross for me, the perfect Lamb of God. The Holy Son of God was a moral miracle, and He's the one that went there for me. So I realized at a certain point in time when I was under the hearing of the gospel that I had that choice. I could go and pay my eternal debt eternally without God, or I could find and trust an eternal and perfect substitute and by God's grace, I, began, I, I turned and trusted Christ. See, he could be my substitute because the scripture has, here says in our text that he took my sin upon him and all the wrath for it in those dark hours on the cross. Look at, at the text. For God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. How does that really compute? I can't even finish understanding that this side of heaven. He took my sin and put it on the sinless one. He took your sin and put it on the sinless one. That doesn't mean Jesus became a sinner. He was impeccable. But it does mean that the best way I've found to put it is that God treated him as if he was a sinner for you. Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament brings it out and poignant words, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Notice Isaiah taught the same thing. All are sinners, and they go astray in sin. We have turned everyone totally to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's an Old Testament reflection of the fact that God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Perhaps the Father would gaze upon Jesus and say, in these hours their sin is your sin. Impossible to fully understand it. The Bible says there was a great transaction that took place. Dr. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on it puts it this way, a key idea in this section is the word imputation. Now that sounds complicated. It meant to credit something. He made him sin. Whereas he says this is a word borrowed from banking. It simply means to put to one's account. When you deposit money in the, in the bank, the teller, or maybe these days the computer through your smartphone, puts that amount to your account or to your credit. When Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins were imputed to him. They were put to his account, and he was treated by God as though he had actually committed those sins. The result, all of those sins have been paid for, and God no longer holds them against us because we have trusted Christ as our Savior. If you hear nothing else today, friend who may be distant from God, hear that. That's the gospel. It's a miracle. Jesus, personally holy, became in the other eyes of the Father officially guilty in our place. Who would have ever thought of such a thing? Only an indescribably loving and wise God. But you know what? It gets better. Let's go to the fourth. 
Remember, remember the line of thought. Let me repeat it for you. Because we were helplessly condemned by our sin, God the Father created a plan to, take, to place all our sin upon his sinless son so he could place all of his son's righteousness upon us. This is the part that may really blow your mind. Look at the passage. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What? Not only is my guilt taken away, but I'm given all the righteousness of Christ so I can be in the perfect presence of the Father forever. This is an an amazing teaching of Scripture. It teaches that everything repulsive and unrighteous about us was credited to Jesus on that cross, and everything righteous about Jesus is credited to us. I don't understand it. When God looks at you, if you're a believer, he sees you covered by the righteousness of, his, of Jesus, his son. There was an old divine named Thomas Hooker in the past who wrote a lot of great things about God. He said, he's put it this way a couple hundred years ago, quote, such are we in the spirit of God the Father as Christ Jesus is himself. I saw a speaker one time illustrate it. In this, in this way, and, and this is a humble attempt. Imagine that this is my life as God wanted it to be, morally perfect and pleasing to Him. What did I do with my life? I filled it with sin. I'm not done yet. (laughs) Okay, that's the first 10 minutes. I consumed that perfect life with a life of human sin and rebellion, acting out who I was. And God, who wanted to see this, when I stand before him, sees this. And he's a perfect and pure and holy God. And he cannot see this. He will not tolerate this in his marvelous presence. The gospel comes into my hearing. I realize who I am before him. But I turn and trust what Christ did for me. And the Bible says that when we come to Christ, we are placed into Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God. So... Is the ugliness of my sin still there? Is everything I brought to God and my wreckedness still there? What do you see? 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 We are in the beloved, the Bible says. I'm now in Christ. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's miraculous Romans 3 we've all sinned verse 23 and fall short of the glory of God we've all we've all contaminated our lives but we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation don't let that word scare you it means a satisfaction of someone's anger by his blood to be received by faith. Do you know that God never has to lower his standards, lower his standards to let you into heaven? He gave you his son and you perfectly satisfy him. 
That's the miracle and the marvel of the gospel. Here's the last phrase, and with it I close. So the ongoing story from this text, the gospel in 24 words, let me review it. Because we were helplessly condemned by our sin, God the Father created a plan to place all of our sin upon his sinless son so he could place all of his son's righteousness upon us. And here's the last, and accept us into his presence forever. That was the wonderful goal of it all. Ephesians 1 says, that is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so this confused man that I quoted at the beginning, who could no longer believe in a God from the Bible that he thought was a bloodthirsty God. Oh, he's mistaken. My God is not a bloodthirsty God. He's a blood offering God. He's a God that created a marvelous pathway to forgiveness and restoration. And his son did it willingly. Ephesians 2 sums it up. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Oh, aren't you glad he is? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Aren't you glad he did? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Did you have anything to do with this plan? Did you counsel with God in the ages past to author it? Did you come to him and ask him for a plan of rescue for your wretched life? Neither did I. It never came into my my morally melted mind, but God did it. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages he did all this so that you can be accepted into his presence forever. And in the coming ages the universe will see the riches of this wonderful plan. And you and I will spend all eternity praising him for saving us by grace through faith. And just as a reminder, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That is the disciple's discovery. That is what a person needs to understand to understand the riches of the gospel. That, whether they were young or old, is what brought these to trust and, and, pardon me, to, to demonstrate their trust in what Jesus had done through baptism. What a story. We were helplessly condemned by our sin, but God the Father created a plan to place all our sin upon his sinless son so he could place all of his son's righteousness upon us and accept us into his presence forever. Maybe coming into your mind this morning is what should you do if you've never understood it until now? Well, you can simply, by faith, admit your sin. Admit that you have no solution, but that Jesus Christ fulfilled my text. Look to Jesus Christ today. See your sin for what it is, and trust your Savior for who He is. You can do that in a moment of quiet prayer by faith. 